Let us now turn to God's Word. We'll be in Mark chapter number 14 this morning. Mark chapter number 14. If you're visiting with us, or you're online and you've not been with us before, um, we pick up in Mark chapter 14 because that's um, the journey we've been on for over a year now. I know some of you are hoping for an end to it uh, at some point. And we're getting there and we're closing in on it. Um, but we pick up this morning in verse number verse number 27 and we'll read through verse number 31 and then we'll seek the Lord in prayer one more time to bless the uh, the preaching of his word and then we'll see what the Lord might have for us this morning as we attempt to minister his word to you and the Lord ministers it as well to myself if you will we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it as I said, we'll take up our reading in verse number 27. Let me read these words according to the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that day, that, that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said, likewise. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we pray and thank you for the privilege it is just to bow before you. Father, we understand and know what had to be accomplished for this to even be a possibility. For us to enter in boldly to the throne room of grace to thank Father what it, what must have had taken place in time past and in eternity and that sinners could stand before a holy God. Uh, we recognize that we gather together this morning around your word and only understand anything about it because you determined it so. And you made it so by the blood of your son. So Father, we thank you for that. We praise you for that this morning and just pray that you'll continue to do that, Father, in our hearts and lives. This morning, Lord, that you would open up our our minds, that you'd open up our inner men, our inner women, uh, and that you would open up, Father, our hearts um, to receive um, the very word that is before us. God, go with us now as we give the next hour to your word. Father, use it in, a, in such a way that it would accomplish, Lord, eternal things. Father, and I ask this not only for the people, but I ask this for myself. Father, I ask that you would um, make me, Father, as well as these people, more like your son, as a result of our gathering. Accomplish, Father, only things in this service that you can accomplish. Thus, that we can glorify you um, after we're done and all throughout the week and throughout eternity uh, for what you did in us, Father, and for us. We are so thankful for your Son. Um, but we also know that he who gave us his only Son, how shall he not also freely give us all things? Father, give us some of those all things this morning. Only things that you can give. Help us to be joyful and obedient, Father, and receive it, whatever it may be, with the utmost joy. Father, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Um, again, if you're visiting with us, or, uh, I think most of you have been with us at some point. Um, the last couple of sermons that I've preached have been somewhat, uh, even seemingly in my own mind, disconnected. They could have almost been topical sermons. But we went to the Lord's table, and I pray that it was a blessing to you. 
but at the same time, what I don't want to happen is to preach sermons in such a way that it, it disconnects one week from the next. You know, we've chosen to go through the book of Mark for a purpose and take it verse by verse for a reason. And, um, and what I would like for us to do is to keep that continuity and keep it within context. Um, that, that this is one story, that oftentimes this would be read in one reading. I know that we spend years going through books of the Bible um, or months or weeks or however long that it may take and just pick apart each and every word and sentence as much as we can. But at the same time, Mark writes a letter. Um, he writes a gospel. Uh, Matthew, uh, Luke, and John do the same thing. These letters, Paul that writes Peter, James, John, um, they do it in such a way to give us a, a big picture as well as a little picture. Um, as a, we learn from each and every verse and command, but at the same time, um, it's, it's, it's extremely important for us also to remember um, the, the big picture you know, of the book of Mark. That it begins um, with Mark writing that this is a writing concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, that he writes concerning the good news. And this is an account of Jesus Christ's life that began three years prior um, to the passage that we're in now. Um, Thirty years in relative obscurity. And Jesus enters in on the pages of Scripture approximately around 30 years of age and begins a public ministry. This ministry would go on for approximately three to three and a half years. The first two would be um, wrapped up in public ministry as he's authenticating his Messiahship. The Old Testament would speak of one who would come and take away the sins of the world. Not, not, not in those exact terms, but time and time again we see this, this progressive revelation of the coming of Christ. This, in the New Testament, you see this anticipation of, of the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the One that is chosen by God to come into the world and set things right, um, to redeem a people, to fix the sin to, to, to heal a diseased world, to set right a broken society, a broken people. Um, thus, even up to this point, the Jews particularly are just waiting upon this Messiah. He comes and they're initially excited about who He is and what He has to offer. Um, yet with uh, very little time, they become dissatisfied with our Lord. Um, he's not what they thought that He ought to be. And it doesn't take long for them to, to turn upon Him and seek after His life. Um, you, you see that all throughout, particularly the Gospels, and that Jesus Christ is here to save the world, but it's not in the way that Israel um, initially thought as Jesus enters in. They thought that He would come in as a king blazing and set Rome right and set Israel right and establish His rule and reign um, in a physical kingdom upon David's throne. But... But, but, but that's not what we find in the Gospels, and that's not what we see today. Um, that Jesus comes in as a lamb. John, the forerunner, uh, John the Baptist, preaches that, that message that uh, as he goes out before Christ, um, he preaches that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sins of the world. Um, that lamb that, would, that was typified in the Old Testament, that lamb that was, that was raised, it was chosen, it was innocent, it was inspected, and it was slaughtered. Uh, for the sins of the world. Hebrews is explicit that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And all throughout the Old Testament, these, the, the, these sacrifices are pointing towards one who would come into the world and He would be the Lamb of God. He would be the sacrifice for the ages. He would be the innocent one um, who would take upon Himself the very form of flesh. He would become a man. And all, Hebrews says in all points like, like we are. And He would become as us. 
He would take upon himself flesh like us in all points. Why? So that he could live a life that we couldn't live and we wouldn't live. He would be a greater than Adam. Where Adam failed, he would not. He would be a greater than Israel. Where Israel would not obey the law, he would. He would. And he would live up to 33 years. That would be, he, he did a lot of things. He did a lot of amazing things. He taught a lot of phenomenal things. Um, even listened to a man this week who's one of the richest in the world um, say he appreciated the teachings of Christ um, and he sat there lost. Um, people get enamored by his teachings. People uh, get enamored by his works. But his greatest work that he came to do was to enter into the world and give his life a ransom for sinners. And this is what we've been working towards. We're in Passover week now. Uh, Passover week was that yearly, that annual celebration of the Passover lamb that was slain centuries earlier. Uh, Moses would institute it according to the very uh, Word of God. as, And they would remember God's deliverance, Israel's deliverance out of the nation of Egypt of slavery and bondage. But it would be a picture of a greater deliverance. Um, that they would look back and remember what God did and He would increase their faith and strengthen their inner men for a fight and for uh, faithfulness. But at the same time, it was, it was to point them toward a greater day in which uh, the Messiah would come and that He would deliver His people. He would buy a people out of the world and deliver them out of slavery and out of bondage. Um, but He would do it in a way that was unthinkable. He would do it in a way that even the disciples wouldn't believe until it all happened and they, and they saw Him buried in a tomb. And that's what we approach. We approach that last week of our Lord's life. I know we'll spend months in it, but this is happening moment after moment and day after day. Um, when we read Mark chapter 14 in this portion, we find out that He's in the night before He will give His life on Calvary. A ransom for sinners like us. The disciples don't inherently see it coming, but it's coming. Um, his hour is near, He says. John chapter 13, this would be a corollary passage. He's in the upper room. And up to this point, all throughout the book of John, he's saying, my hour is not yet. My hour has not yet come. And in John chapter 13, as he's in the upper room and he's administering Passover to his disciple, he's instituting the Lord's Supper. Um, he says, the hour has come. My hour is near, he says. Um, so near um, that just within a few moments, he's going to be separated from his disciples um, he's at odds with the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious elite of, of the nation of Israel. Um, he's provoked to them over the course of the last week. He's went into the temple. He's dialogued. He's preached the kingdom. He's flipped the tables um, in righteous indignation. They've turned the house of God, um, a house of prayer, into a den of thieves. It's, it's, a, it's a gambling ring. Um, and he has pronounced judgment coming upon that people, that generation, and we've read all about that. Such to the point that Mark chapter 14 says in verse number 1 that after two days it was the Passover and the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might to take Him by trickery and to put Him to death. That He had rubbed them the wrong way long enough. But in the middle of a feast week, they were afraid to do it because it would cause riots. So they sought how to do it by trickery. And they got the answer to their desire in the person of Judas. And Judas is being administered Passover even now. Um, but in his heart is to deceive our Lord and to betray Him. And we'll read about how exactly that comes in the, in the coming weeks. But he's administered Passover to the disciples. He's instituted the Lord's Supper to remind them of His broken body and His blood. And, and they don't fully understand that. 
And the Bible says in verse number 26, and then when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Um, so, so they're out of the upper room now. They're out of, um, out of that, that, that intimate fellowship of the Last Supper. And Jesus parts from there, departs from there, and He goes out to the Mount of Olives and begins a whole new dialogue and conversation with His disciples. And He says these words, and our Lord Jesus gives them a prophecy. We see here Christ's prophecy concerning His disciples. And He says this to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of Me. This night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to Him, Even if all are made to stumble, Lord, yet I will not. I will not be, He says. And we see a prophecy that, that, that is no doubt sobering to the disciples. And it's not just sobering, it's frustrating for some, to be honest with you. And, and you can guess who it's going to be. It's going to be um, the one who's always frustrated with our Lord. And, and in a sincere way, he doesn't fully understand, thus he, he, he pushes back and he even rejects oftentimes the word of our Lord. It's Peter. What is he frustrated with? What does he disagree with? What is he at odds with our Lord about? But Jesus comes to them at this moment and in a very sobering prophecy, um, He says, according to the Scriptures, you will all be stumbled. He says, I will strike the shepherd. No doubt referring to Jesus Himself. I being the Father, the shepherd being the Son. And He says as a result of that, the sheep will be scattered. And while they don't understand everything that's going on, and they don't understand all of the words of Christ, there's no doubt that in some sense, Peter understands this. He understands it to such an extent that, he, that there's turmoil in his soul and he objects to it. And saying, Lord, um, all may stumble, all may reject you, but I will never reject you. Though, though, though the rest of the eleven go, I will not. This is a prophecy out of the book of Zechariah. If you were to go back just a few books, Matthew, you would find Malachi, and then you would find Zechariah in the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting from Zechariah chapter number 13 and verse number 7. You read these words just to give you a little context. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against or upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire, he says. will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, this is my people. And each one of them will say, the Lord is my God. When Jesus quotes the passage, he no doubt um, attempts to provoke their thinking to this prophecy. And not only that it would be sobering, but that it would also be a, a, a comfort in the coming days. That the sword by the hand of the Father would be in some sense thrust into the very bosom of the Son, into the, into the life of the Son, and that the shepherd would be struck down. Uh, no doubt referring to our Lord's death on the cross. And it would happen before their very eyes, and what would their response be? But Jesus tells them that their response would be that they would stumble. They would stumble to such an extent that they would be scattered. Zechariah says, though, that this hand is turned against or upon his little ones. 
And it's not the hand of punishment, I don't believe, but the hand that works on behalf of those that are weak and unstable. They don't understand that our Lord is not inherently condemning them here for the scattering. He's prophesying such that when the time is right, they'll remember and they'll turn back to Him. And I think that's the point. There is a negative here, but there's a positive. And, and Peter inherently gets hung up on the negative. And he responds in such a prideful way. But there's a positive here. And if you read it in the context, the prophecy that's being fulfilled in, in, uh, in Zechariah, that there's a remnant that will be brought through the refiner's fire. And as a result of that refinement, they will truly become the people of God. That, that, that the scattering will even lead to their um, reviving, to their refining. They will be made in the fire in a sense. Uh, D.A. Carson, commentator Christian on this, says they're falling away this very night and beyond is emblematic of the coming dispersion of the whole nation. But a purified remnant, a third will survive the refining and make up the people of God. My people, he says. Thus, at the very instant, Jesus' disciples show by their scattering that they temporarily, temporarily side with the unbelieving apostate nation. God at the same time is taking action to make them into His true people. And that's what He says in Mark chapter number 14. Um, he goes on to prophesy um, beyond the prophecy in Zechariah. And He says, Assuredly, I say to you, uh, He says, uh, verse number 28, But after I have been raised, so I'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But listen, after I've been raised... I'll go before you to Galilee. After I rise from the dead, after the resurrection, I will go before you. You will come after me. You will no longer be scattered. Peter didn't listen to that though. Or maybe he did and he still disagreed. Uh, Peter says to him in verse number 29, uh, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus says to him, Assuredly. And he, and he goes on to, to elaborate more upon the prophecy. So there's this prophecy of all of them. All the disciples. Jesus will in, in, in inevitably be alone on the cross. Peter says, no, I will not. I will not leave you, even unto death. Um, and Jesus focuses in now on Peter. And he says, assuredly I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Three times. Jesus responds with a prophecy, with, with, to the prophecy with a prophecy. He zeroes in and He says, by the end of the night, Peter, this prophecy will come true. You won't just be fallen. You won't just stumble. Not just scattered. You'll betray our Lord is essentially what He says. That word deny. Um, it, it's a word that literally means to deny relationship, deny knowing, to deny. Uh, Jesus uses it. The disciples that say, he says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourselves. Take no relationship with yourselves. Follow me. In a similar way, Peter, he says, you will deny me. You'll deny you even know me. Um, even this night. Peter insistently, the idea there is that people, uh, they, they, in verse 31, he speaks more vehemently. Uh, that verb is in such a form 
Um, that, that, that it's a continual argument. He's continuing to argue on. It's in a tense that, that just is, it started and he won't stop. He's like a child that you just can't argue with. And our Lord doesn't really argue with him. But he goes on um, and, and he continues to emphatically insist with all sincerity. And I don't believe he's lying to our Lord. I think that he believes that he has within him um, the confidence and the strength and the, the skill and the leadership um, such that um, he believes um, in a very overconfident way that anything that would come before him, he would never forsake his Lord. And Jesus just looks him square in the eye and says, Peter, tonight you're going to. Before the rooster crows twice. The fulfillment of the, uh, the prophecy happens that night. Um, immediately after that, in verse 32, they're going to go into a garden, a garden called Gethsemane. Um, our Lord is said to be exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. He asks the disciples three times to stay and watch, and they just won't. Um, Peter falls asleep within the first hour. Jesus comes back and he says, Peter, why, why couldn't you stay and watch for just one hour? Um, he asks him after that to watch and to pray that they might not enter into temptation. He comes back and they're asleep. Our Lord is agonizing over what is coming, um, such that in, a, in one gospel, even agonizes such that he prays that the Lord would remove the cup um, if at all possible. But if, but if not, he says, Thy will be done. Right, I, I'm leaning on you, Lord. If there's any other way in his humanity, um, which is a mystery to me, but he does, he's agonizing. Um, and, and he encourages his disciples to pray that they might not, um, that, that, that lest you enter into temptation, he says. Um, immediately after that, verse 42, he says, he, the, the scripture says that they rise and he says, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas is at work, essentially is what he's saying. Verse number 43, and immediately, um, speaking, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude of swords and clubs, they came. I mean, they, they came to seize our Lord. A fight breaks out. Um, somebody's ears cut off. Swords are swinging. And our Lord says, wait, you know, um, have I been so long with you um, that you think I'm going to fight you back? Um, and he goes like a lamb to the slaughter. And he stays probably Peter's sword. And he heals the ear and he, he goes on. And they take him. What happens in verse number 50 is the prophecy is fulfilled. The scripture says, then they all forsook him and fled. They all forsook him and fled. Verse number 53, we find Peter once again, and they led Jesus away to, a high, to the high priest. And, when, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. So now they've, they've taken him into the high priest's house. Um, probably somewhat like a palace. Outside of that, you have courtyards, an inner courtyard and an outer courtyard. Verse 54 says, but Peter followed him at a distance, right in the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at um, the fire. Verse number 53 and 54. Uh, one uh, Christian commentator makes the observation, uh, speaking of Peter, he says he was drawn by love but kept at a safe distance by, by fear. He's following behind. He still wants to believe on our Lord. He's still interested in what's happening. He, he loves Him. Um, such, but, he, but he stays back at as a distance. They take Him into the high priest's house and there's somewhat of an informal trial at this point um, inside the, the, the high priest's home. Um, and you can read the text. and so We'll get there eventually, but it's at this point that they really determine um, that he's a blasphemer, verse 64. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? 
And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit on our Lord, it says. Some began to blindfold him. And some beat him, saying to him, prophesy. They mocked him. The officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Verse 66, and now as Peter was below in the courtyard, again, they're inside the house. He could possibly hear the beginning of the beatings, the spitting, the mocking of our Lord. And uh, Peter was below, the Scripture says in verse 66, in the courtyard. And one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Um, This little servant girl, it, it, it literally means that, little girl. Um, It's in a diminutive form. It means a small one, Um, probably not even a teenager yet, but she works within the high priest's home. Um, She comes out of the house. Who knows why? Maybe it's to look for disciples after um, they've determined to beat him and to kill him. We don't 100% know, but she sees him. Verse 67 says, and she saw Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, which had been the outer, outside the courts, and, and a rooster crowed. No doubt our Lord provoking the very thinking of Peter as he denies our Lord. She comes to him, this man who had just hour before said, I will go with you, Lord, even to death. Um... His, his, his whole inner man is shattered for some reason. Maybe it's in the turmoil. Maybe it was in the fight. Maybe it was in Judas's betrayal. Maybe it was, but he saw a hundred things coming that, or he saw a hundred things come that he just didn't expect. And now he's totally off guard. I mean, here's the beatings possibly. And a little girl, literally, a little girl comes and asks him and says, aren't you one of the disciples? He says, no. I don't know or understand even what you're saying. I've never seen this man. I don't know this man. And the Bible says in verse 66, the servant girl saw him again, so he ran out to the porch. We don't know if she was just passing by once again or she went after him later on and began to say to those who stood by. So now this is, he says, this is one of them. Not only has she had interaction with him and pointed him out to himself and he denies, but now she goes out, finds him and says to everyone else around, this is one of them. And uh, and a perfect time for him to stand up and say, I am am a follower of Jesus Christ. Verse 70, but he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely. You are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. So the little girl comes once, and he denies it. She comes again, and and, and in front of everyone, he denies it. And then later, another one comes and says, surely you are one of them. I mean, we recognize your accent. The Galilean accent would have been somewhat like a southern drawl. It would have been um, uh, not that considered astute or or, uh, upper class, but it would have been very identifiable that as he spoke, they would have understood that he was from Galilee and that there were people within Galilee that would have followed our that were following our Lord. So two plus two, they, they, um, they concluded equals four that this is one of those. If he is here, the Galileans just don't hang around um, the area, that if he is here, that it is one of those whom follow Christ. Verse 71, and then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man um, of whom you speak. Peter curses and he swears. 
This doesn't mean that he began cussing in such a in such a way that we would probably argue today. I'm using that terminology. He wasn't using crude language in the way that we would think of it. Um, but 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 to swear means or to to curse means to anathematize, to condemn. Um, to swear means to make an oath. Um, it's hard to say exactly what he was arguing, but but most likely what he's doing is that he is saying things like that we would say unaccept. I swear to God, I am not one of those men. And if I am, may God strike me dead right now. You know, that's, that's probably what he's arguing. These people come and they say, there is no way. And, and he swears and he anathematizes himself if he's lying. Um, he says, that, that may this curse be upon me um, if I'm lying. And may the Lord Himself strike me dead. That was often how it was used um, in those days. He's saying, I don't know this man. I'm not lying. And if so, may God strike me dead even now. That's probably um, the nature and temperament of it. Verse number 72, a second time, the rooster crowed. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. For the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, the Scripture says that, that he wept. Luke chapter 22 is Luke's version of this. Um, Luke chapter 22 and verse number 60, you read this. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, in the middle of his denial, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He said to him before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Luke says, so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Wept bitterly, there's two words in the English. It's also two words in the original. Um, and it gives the picture that it was uh, bitterly would give, give, give the idea that he went out and he broke down. Um, chances are that as soon as he heard the rooster crow, and in another portion of Scripture, that what you'll read is that our Lord, for whatever reason, was being taken from the high priest home and he over with a look. He looks at Peter. That's all he does. Peter just breaks down. And he does the unthinkable, literally the unthinkable, the thing that he thought he would never do. Um, and with, a, with, with common grace and with just simple means of a rooster crow, um, our Lord uses it to call back to memory the very Word of God that breaks Peter down. And with a look, um, he melts. Um, being the man that he never thought he would be, the man that he didn't want to be, with all sincerity, um, yeah. Peter enters into a temptation. Peter enters into a trial. That's exactly what our Lord was encouraging him to pray and to watch for. But he wouldn't do it. Um, and that's the story. It's simply that this morning. Um, so what can we learn? That's the next question. Read the text. What, is the, what does the text mean? And then how does the text apply? And if you'll think for just a few moments and just really allow that, that story, that account to come alive, um, I pray that it will affect you in a mighty way. I mean, it would be akin today to your greatest theologian whom you would never think would ever fall. Whom you think was perfect, a superhero in the faith of some sense. And I've had some. 
and how discouraging it is on many days to see them fall by the wayside. Giving them ground that was probably impossible, it should have never been given. Because they're not perfect and they're not our Lord. And to look at them almost like they are the Savior. And then to lose confidence even in our Lord when they fall. But even more than that, maybe you've been there. Right? Like That's really the point, isn't it? That this Scripture is not only Peter's Scripture, but it's ours. And that it was left for us for an example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, to teach us something not only about Peter and not only about the disciples, but also about ourselves. And has there not been many days where the Lord has brought to us temptations, and not temptations in the sense of seducing us, as James would say, seducing us to sin, but temptations and tests um, as Zechariah and as Paul would say in Romans 5 and James would say in chapter 1 and, and, and many other places where it speaks of tests and temptations that would come um, as, as a refiner's fire to make us more like the Son, to make us more like Christ. That He would use it to push us to a point to where we would um, that, that, that even deny our Lord. Maybe this is you this morning. Who has been so overly confident with even somewhat of a smug arrogance such to the extent um, that you need to be humbled. Thus, that God may use you in a mighty way. What's the purpose of this? You ever asked that? I asked myself that question just this week. Lord, why? Not only why would you tell me this, but why would you do this? Why would you do this to Peter? Why would you tell him such things? It's not for our Lord's benefit. He knew. But a prophecy is given to Peter for a particular reason such that the Lord would use it in his life to remind him of the faithfulness of God and to humble him to such an extent that he would lean upon him. It would lead to brokenness. It would lead to repentance. It would lead to a redeeming grace in which he would only find there. You see, that's one of the great purposes in trials and tribulations for us as believers. You know, the world has asked that question, what's the purpose of this testing, this trial? Um, that's a good question to ask. The world has many answers. You know? has many views on tests and trials and tribulations. Some believe that there is no God. That we're simply matter in motion. That we're just stardust bumping up against stardust. That we're just primordial ooze that has evolved over a, an extensive period of time. And after billions of years, here we are uh, together uh, in concert, in this beautiful chaos of some sense, um, in this room, and it's just billions of chemical processes um, going off in proximity one toward another. And if that's the case, the reality is, is that trials and tribulations mean nothing. Maybe that's you this morning. Um, maybe you ascribe to God in some sense or, or the reality of a being that transcends us, but, but practically speaking, you sit back and you wonder why you went through what you went through last week or two months ago or years ago. And you still don't understand it and you're angry about it and you're bitter um, because it really you wonder why it happened. Or maybe you believe that there is a God 
But that he's a God that's detached and indifferent. He just kind of got the ball rolling. He, he spun the, the, the clock and now the, the cogs are turning in some sense. And, but, 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 but it's not his will that, that any of this happens. Evil is outside of it and, and he can't really do anything about it and there's no purpose. So let us not lay the blame upon God inherently. After all, I mean, what is he to do? His hands are bound um, with the free will of man. And then really it just becomes Satan's realm. It's a, he's the prince and the power of the air and that we, we need to blame him for everything. That if only we could beat Satan, the devil, um, the great tempter, then maybe we could rise above these temptations, rise above these trials. And then make sense of this work and finally, this world, and finally live for God like we desire to. Satan's the problem. Or maybe it's that you have a God um, who is akin to the prosperity gospel, preachers, and word of faith movement. That you're wondering today if you have enough faith, and that's why you're going through what you're going through. Right? Many people today believe that the trials and temptations of this life come um, simply because, and the difficulties come because they don't believe God enough. Surely, if you believed God, then you would have material wealth. Surely, if you believed God, then you would be financially stable. Surely, you would have physical health. Surely, um, God would bless you if you believed in Him enough. Thus, the conclusion is, is that if these things are going on all around me, then the circumstances must dictate um, that I don't have enough faith. I need to believe God more. Thus trials and tribulations become an enemy of mankind instead of, his, instead of grace and a friend to the saved sinner. There's a whole host of ways that you could look at the tests and the trials and the tribulations and the temptations of this life from, from, from no meaning at all from, to, to, to the very evil of Satan and his control to where God is somewhat indifferent and you're wondering how in the world, why in the world are things going on? And maybe it's even me. Maybe I'm the problem and I need more faith. And if it's not any of those, what is it? <laughs> you know. So what's the biblical view? I'm going to give you my understanding of it this morning that God is sovereign over all that there is not one square inch in the universe that he doesn't in some way govern nor is there one event that happens outside of the ultimate plan of God that God is responsible for the good in the world but God is too responsible for the evil but he's not responsible for the evil in a primary active way meaning that he doesn't cause it to happen he doesn't make evil men evil but he is in control of it in some at least a passive way and the perfect illustration of that is Christ on the cross, right? At some point, the evil in the world and the good converge upon one another on the same plane to accomplish God's purposes such that the question could be asked even in the, the, the crucifixion, who put Jesus to death? And someone could say, Rome. And we would say, Amen. Rome did put Him to death. Another crowd may say, Jew, Ju Judaism. Israel put Jesus to death, the high priest. And we would say, Amen. Of course He did. And at the same time, we know that that couldn't have happened except by the decree of God. No man can kill God. It happened because God determined to lay down His life on Calvary for the sins of the world. Yet at the same time, we know that Peter indicts the nation of Israel in Acts chapter 2 and says, You murdered the Christ. So who's responsible? Evil men with hatred in their heart who committed murder unprovoked by God? Yes. But at the same time, we know they could have only done that 
um, if God allowed and permitted it. And with one word, Christ could have called down legions of angels and prohibited them from, 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 from murdering the Christ. Thus, even the evil of man means something. In a sense that God uses it for His own good and His own glory to bring about even the salvation of the world. That yes, Satan is out there as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But what we find even in this um, Scripture and in this text in the book of Luke is that, that, that in this context, Satan comes and demands or asks God for Peter. He says, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to sift thee like wheat. And no doubt that he goes back in his mind in thinking to Job, in whom God comes, or Satan comes to the very um, present in the presence of God and, and asks God for Job. And what does God say? Why does Job go? Or why, why does Satan go? Because Job is a righteous man. And Satan's argument is, is that if we could only test him, if we could only put him in the fire, if we could only persecute him, uh, that, 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 that his faith will be, his faith will go. The only reason, God, that he's actually here um, serving you is because you've blessed him from up on high. I mean, he's got family, he's got children, he's got a wife, he's got a home, he's got cattle, he's got land. I mean, uh, of course he's going to serve you. I mean, you've blessed him with all that. Take all that away and see what Job does. Give him to me for just a moment. What does God do? God says, okay, but you can't go this far. Son, you're on a leash. You know, Satan is um, is just a pawn in the game of, of, of God's providence and he utilizes him for 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 his own glory, allowing him unre- uh, re- allowing him restrained to perform his own will. And at the same time, with the blow to Job, what does Job say at the end? Um, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the, the things that I had heard and the things that I had seen with my own eyes are uh, I have I've now seen with my own eyes. That the most righteous man through the persecution comes out of the other end. I mean, faith and repentance um, uh, stronger than what he ever was before. That that's the idea. And that, that, that Peter now is being requested, asked, demanded in some sense by Satan himself. But not only him, all the disciples. Literally says that, 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 that Jesus says to Peter and to the disciples, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. Um, if, you, if you're familiar with farming, uh, a sieve would have been that type of machinery that you would put the wheat in and it would separate the um, chaff from the kernel. And the chaff would be tossed up and it would be cast away in its weightlessness and the kernel would stay. No doubt, um, our Lord is, is communicating to Peter that, that Satan wants you. And he wants to separate you from your faith. He wants to ruin you. By destroying you. He wants to violently overtake you in such a way that it would separate you from your faith. Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. That Satan in some sense comes against Peter himself and against the whole uh, the, the whole council of apostles and, and even Christians today and, and the demonic influence why? to ruin our faith as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Peter has a great high priest um, at the right hand of God um, and at his right hand in that moment and that prays for him and keeps him that his faith would not fail. So while Satan means it for evil, God means it for good. 
In a similar note, we, we, we know that testing comes from Satan, the world, the flesh. Yet also we know that it comes from God passively as He permits it and allows it um, a restrained evil um, such that it would even promote um, the refining of God's people. That's the idea. That's the prophecy in Zechariah. The, the, the shepherd would be struck down. The sheep would be scattered. But in the end, I would have a people for myself. I would put them through the refiner's fire and their faith would stand strong and sure instead fast because of what I accomplished. That's the biblical view of trials and tests and temptations. That God tests no man in such a way that He seduces them to evil, but He allows and permits it in our lives in such a way that, that God's people grow. That Satan cannot separate you from your faith ultimately if God has redeemed you and saved you. That you too have a high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father who is continually interceding for you. Praying for you. And do we think for one moment that the very Son of God, God Himself, would offer up a prayer that God the Father would not answer? Um, thus, all that the devil has, demonic influence, the world, the flesh, they bring against the soul, the heart, the life, the body of an individual who is a believer. All they can do is push you on to Christ. Peter writes in his epistle later, almost three decades, 1 Peter 1.6, he says, In this you greatly rejoice. Well, what salvation? To be one day revealed. He says, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. That Peter had learned that the reason that he went through that, at least that, if not many other persecutions and trials and tribulations, that it was that God would make him, that God would refine him, that God would, and that he would count that in the end even more precious than gold. Right? That's what he says. He says, I thank God and rejoice in the salvation to be revealed. Why? Because that salvation will be even secured by the various trials. Although I grieve for a moment, I wouldn't trade it for the world because the genuineness of my faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, it's tested by fire and be to be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That... Um, The great Puritan John Owen says two things are to be considered regarding a temptation after he had went to the Scriptures. Um, he said there's two reasons for it. Number one, God uses it to show us what is in us. And number two, God uses it to show us Himself. Number one, God uses it to show us what is in us. He goes on to say in his work on temptation, grace and corruption lie deep in the heart. Men oftentimes deceive themselves in the search after the one or other of them. When we give bent to the soul to try what grace there is, corruption comes out. When we search for corruption, grace comes or appears. So is the soul kept in uncertainty and we fail in our trials. God comes with a gauge then that goes to the bottom. He sends His instruments on trial uh, of trial into the bowels and the inmost parts of the soul and lets a man see what is in him. 
of what metal he has made. God often uses temptations and trials and allows them in our lives to show us what is in us. God also uses them to show us Himself. He goes on to say that um, trials come in our lives that He might show us preventing grace by keeping us from the temptation or from failing in the temptation of His own renewing grace or restoring grace once He's failed in it. He says, a man shall see that God alone keeps him from sin. You know, until we're tempted, we're tempted to think that we can live in our own strength, aren't we? We say things like, oh, if, the, if all the world and the church did this or that, we would never. You know? I mean, if they came down this on, uh, on my job or this happened in my family or someone came to my doorstep or I engaged, um, of course I would be faithful. Of course I would serve and honor God. Of course I would never deny Him. And yet when the trial comes, um, we quickly see where our preservation comes from, either by standing or by falling. And what Satan devises, designs as evil upon us to destroy us and to separate us from our faith, God uses um, to test us, to show us what is in us and to show how vital His grace is to us. Either in our preservation and victory or in our restoration. Right? What's the purpose of all this? That's the question. Matthew chapter 16 records just a supernatural, I mean, just an amazing experience between uh, Peter and, and God and the disciples. It's that, it's, that, it's that phenomenal portion of Scripture where, 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 where Jesus comes and He says, who do men say that I am? And they just start giving you know, the local um, ideas and thoughts on who He is. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're um, Jeremiah the prophet. Some say this and some say that. Peter, who do you say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Thou hast well said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And upon this rock I will build my church. There's a lot of debate on what that is. The Catholic Church has built a, a, a doctrine around that that has resulted in the Pope. And most Baptists today reject that he's even speaking about Peter because of that. But I think he is. I think there he's probably talking about Peter. I think he's talking about the apostles. I think he's talking about the, uh, the foundation stones in which the church would be built upon. That, that you will be, Peter, you're going to be a key player in the kingdom of God. One of the foundation stones upon which the church will be built. And now we, we, we find him with a, a self-confidence that's overinflated. And a faith that is weak. We can simply ask, Lord, why are you doing this? Isn't this a man according to that? Isn't this a man that you, you'd want to protect? I mean, Satan's desire to come after him. Lord, couldn't you just say no? Lord, why don't you stand in the gap for Peter? Are you not stronger than the evil one? Lord, it's clear that you know what's going on. You know what's ahead. You know why don't you intervene? And it's not really an extremely difficult question to answer now, is it? It was so Peter could see what was in himself. And so that God would show him Self to Him. That this would actually be the fire in which each of the foundation stone would be forged and treated to make it strong enough to support the church. That actually the reason that I'm allowing this and permitting this and Satan to come against Him is because He's not ready to be the foundation stone. To prevent Him from going through that would actually leave a man like Peter 
with an overconfident, arrogant, prideful heart with a faith that could not stand a little girl. Thus I will accomplish the purpose of making Him what I desire to make Him by not intervening in the way that we think that you ought to, by preventing the trial altogether. That this is where men are made in the fire. That this is where tools are forged. This is where swords are made. This is where the fight is born and birthed out of. It's there that you see yourself as sinful and weak as you are, and it's there that you cling to the grace of Christ such that you depend upon Him more than you depend upon yourself. And Peter needed to know that. Peter needed to see that. Peter needed to stand against toe-to-toe with Satan himself, who is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter even says later in his epistles. Why? Because Peter needed to know himself. Peter needed to come to the end of himself. He had such a prideful self-confidence that his faith was made weak because he was in himself too strong. Lord, I'll never deny you. I mean, the other 11, I know you've seen them preach and you've seen them teach and you've seen them minister. And I mean, I mean, they're kind of, uh, I, I could see why you might say that about them, but not me. Not me. Understanding that, we can see and understand why God didn't protect them in the sense that we, like, we think that we might. Right? We like to protect our children from all harm. We like to protect our children from all disease and disaster and, and every other thing. We think that oftentimes that's best for them. Let's shelter them. And, and there is a sense in which, yes, we need to keep our children safe. We need to protect them. We need to guard them. We need to do certain things. But at the same time, you know, They've got to live life in the world and know Jesus Christ Himself and they will never depend upon Him if all they ever depend upon is you. And that's what we have to learn as well. That this is true of all God's servants. Um, that our faith will never be strong until first we see what is inside ourselves. Right? Have you ever seen what's inside? Spurgeon, that great preacher, says this concerning himself. He says, there are some professing Christians who can speak of themselves in terms of admiration. But from my inmost heart, I loathe such speeches more and more every day that I live. Those who talk in such a boastful fashion must be constituted very differently from me. I feel like this is me. He goes on to say, while they are congratulating themselves, I have to lie humbly at the foot of Christ's cross and marvel that I'm saved at all. For what? For I know that I am saved. I have to wonder that I do not believe Christ more and equally wonder that I'm privileged to believe in Him at all. To wonder that I do not love Him more and equally to wonder that I love Him at all. To wonder that I am not holier and equally to wonder that I have any desire to be holy at all considering what a polluted, debased, depraved nature I find within my soul. Notwithstanding all that divine grace has done in me. He goes on to say, if God were ever allow the fountains of the great deeps of depravity to break up in the best man that lives, he would make as bad a devil as the devil himself. He says, I care nothing for, those, for what these boasters say concerning their own perfections. I feel sure that they do not know themselves or they could not talk as often they do. He goes on to say there is tender enough, tender not in the sense of a tender heart, but tender as in like um, a wood that, would, uh, that you would catch a flame. He says there is tender enough in the saint, T-I-N-D-R, there is tender enough in the saint who is nearest to heaven 
to kindle another hell if God should but permit a spark to fall upon it. In the very best of men, there is an infernal and well-nigh infinite depth of depravity. Some Christians never seem to find this out. I almost wish that they might not do so, for it is a painful discovery for anyone to make. But it is a beneficial effect of making us cease from trusting in ourselves and causing us to glory only in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10.17, But he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. You know, a few weeks ago, I preached on Judas. And what, we have, and what we have a tendency to do is just give him down the road, man. And I did. You know, I mean, all of the light, all of the glory, all of the sermons, all of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the, the prayers that they spent with our Lord for three and a half years. And it's easy to, to get lost in that and wonder and, and, and even righteous indignation sometimes and think, man, with all you had, how did you, how did you go down that route? I mean, you're a fool. Failing to remember that within our own hearts, that the, the, the glory, that the, the, the surprising thing throughout this entire passage is not that Judas betrayed, it is that Peter stood fast. You know, all of them left. Every one of them. You know, we think that we're just, we're just faithful and we would never do that. And it's only by the grace of God that we haven't crucified our Lord today. You know, we're all of the same stock. You know, the cream of the crop was there, the twelve that were with Christ. And it wasn't just Judas that, that betrayed. They all left Him. Every one of them. Peter himself denied our Lord three times. You know, the, 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 the blessing and the glory of this passage or the thing that we should be enamored with and get hung up on is not that, 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 Jude, that in this, this, this self-righteous type of mentality of Judas is just a fool and an idiot. And why, how in the world could he do that? It's just the glory that all of us have it. You know, it's a wonder today that any of us are saved. And if it wasn't for the, 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 the gracious act of God, uh, just as in Peter's life, in whom he said, you're going to go. You're going to go the way of Judas in some sense. You're going to deny him three times. You're going to abandon him. You know, the glory is, is that Peter was being prayed for by the Son such that God the Father would answer his prayers and bring him back. And when you come back, he says, this is part of the prophecy. You're going to be refined like gold. You go and you strengthen your brethren. When I arise, I will go before you. That's exactly what you see. You know, that, that God uses this, this test, this temptation, and even Satan himself unleashed to an extent in Peter's life to show him, to bring him to the end of himself such that when Jesus Christ looks at him and he hears the rooster crow, he is broken to the core. There is remorse and there is shame and there is guilt. So what's the difference between Judas and Peter? And that, 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 that Peter would not only look at himself, but that he would look to Christ. That's it. That's the only thing that makes you any different than him. That God would extend you and I grace. Um, not only in showing us ourselves, but in showing us Him. You see, that's where true repentance is born and it leads to life. Right? That's the point of it all. 
It was so that Peter could see more clearly the grace of Christ. That's what molded him into the uh, Acts chapter 2 preacher who would stand in the face of opposition, who would one day give his life on, uh, on a cross upside down for his Lord. That's the only way. It wasn't a training class. It wasn't more time here or there. It wasn't spending more time um, in a systematic uh, theology or in seminary or here or that. He needed to see Christ. And he needed to see himself. That's Christ shows him himself. And he does it in showing him him. You see, that's where Christians are born. That is where faith is, um, is, is wrought. God never simply shows us ourselves for the sake of showing ourselves. He never says, son, look in the mirror just so that you'll see yourself. He never shows you you so that you can glory in yourself, nor does He simply show you you so that He might leave you in horror or depression. He shows you yourself that, he might, that you might look to Christ. To understand the, the purpose of it, it might be helpful to think first of how He reveals ourselves to us. How do the horrors of self even surface to the top? How do we know ourselves? How does God reveal that to us? He does it by revealing Himself to us. Right? It's amazing the remedy always comes with the diagnosis because the diagnosis cannot be made without the remedy. And what I mean is this. It is when we see ourselves in light of Christ that we truly see ourselves. And in that same moment, the remedy is ever before us. I would not say all, but many people, maybe even from personal experience, who remain chronically depressed, self-deprecating, unhappy, and dejected because of something uh, in themselves, or they don't, they don't measure up, and they're not only uh, some of the most miserable people, um, but also some of the most evil. The sense of self is low, but it's low, not low because they've encountered God. It's low because of some arbitrary standard by which they can't meet. They feel unable. They feel incapable. They need in help. They need in need of help. But it's not a godly sorrow that leads to life. It's a godly sorrow. It's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's an arrogant and a prideful sorrow because they will not look to Christ. They've created some standard in which they can't meet. Um, but the ultimate standard is Christ. And when you see Him, um, you run to Him. Because in that same cross, um, He offers you life and offers it more abundantly. Thus, we need to submit to the truth. Isaiah 6 is a perfect one, right? What happens is to, uh, God shows Himself to Isaiah and He just he falls to the ground. He's on His face. He's worshiping. And He says, Whoa, I'm a man of unclean lips. And in the same blow, God redeems him. In the same blow, God makes him clean. God says, Get up, son, and go. It is in the revelation of God in His character, particularly in the person of Christ, where we truly see ourselves as we measure ourselves against Him. We see we're unholy. We see we're unrighteous. We see we are weak. We see we are indebted. And we see that we cannot ever enter into the kingdom of heaven without Him. Thus, in the same blow, He offers Himself and He says, Come unto Me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And in it, we find the righteousness of Christ. In it, we find the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ. And we find reason and purpose now to live. And out of the gratitude of heart, not for the purpose of, of, of measuring up or, or accruing any type of stature with God, just out of grace in our hearts. We, we, we are constrained by the love of Christ to serve and to honor Him. That's what Peter needed. God, why didn't you keep him from the temptation? He's going to be great in the kingdom of God. We've got to, we've got to keep this man safe. If we do that, we'll lose the man. 
He's got to see himself and he's got to see Christ. He's got to know what true repentance is. He's got to know how weak he is. He's got to know how to depend upon me. If he's going to preach with boldness and come boldly to the throne room of grace and ask for things that, that only I can give him, he must know that I am all of life and I am the only thing that he needs. He must know how to abandon the world and abandon himself to deny himself. And, 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 and that may come in the form of him denying me. And with a look, the word of God just overwhelms his soul and he comes alive and God restores him in the most amazing way just days later. Um, I always love reading as the angels are there at the tomb <laughs> and they say, and one of the angels says, go and tell the disciples he's risen. And then, but it says this in Mark 16, verse 7 and in John. He says, go and tell the disciples and Peter. Go tell Peter. Let him know. Let him know. Mark 14, 27, he says, it's true. I have been raised and I will go before you in Galilee. Let him know that I'm alive. Let him know that I am here. Let him know that the, that, that, that the son's prayer was answered. Let him know. And he comes back and three times he has a conversation with our Lord. Our Lord says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, I love you. He says, Lord, he says Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. Through all that, Peter was loved. And Peter loved. See, so why did he say that three times? Maybe it was because he denied the Lord three times. Maybe it was because he sinned against the Lord three times by not praying. And thus, our Lord assures him of his restoration um, by loving him and then allowing him the opportunity to love him three times. That um, the point of this is, is that trials and tribulations come into the believer's life. And uh, Matthew 13 says that those who are not of faith, of course, they'll run for the hills. Um, when persecution becomes because of the word, um, there's no root in them. They'll be burned up in a moment. They will not last. But over and over again in the scriptures, um, trials and tribulations... It doesn't make them not painful. It doesn't make them hard. You know, this, this type of theology doesn't make them, doesn't remove this thing. But it helps us interpret this thing. It helps us understand this thing. It helps us interpret the pain. It helps us know that it's for a reason and that it has meaning. And this is to push me on and to make me more like Christ and to refine me in the fire. J.C. Ryle says, let us take comfort in the thought that the Lord doesn't cast off His believing people because of failures and imperfections. He knows what they are. What comfort do you have in that this morning? You know? Like he, takes, he goes on and says, He takes them as husbands, takes a wife, and vice versa, with all their blemishes and defects, and what's joined to Him by faith will never put them away. He's a merciful and a compassionate high priest. It is His glory to pass over the transgressions of His people and to cover their many sins. He knew what they would be before their conversion. You know, it doesn't surprise the Lord this morning that you fail. It doesn't surprise Him this morning that you are locked into sin on many accounts. It doesn't surprise Him this morning. He's not disgusted by that, that you're weak and erring and frail. He loves you. And the things that He brings into your life today is not because He doesn't. You know? It's not because He wants to protect you and you have so much of an easy life and therefore God, um, God, God loves me more because I have somewhat of a, an easy and a comfortable life. No, no, He brings you through those things to make you more like Himself that you might know the love of God in a deeper fashion. He knows this morning your shortcomings. He understands your failures. He knows you're going to, to deny Him today. And it, it, it doesn't mean that that is justified or you should do that. I'm simply saying that He knows 
And that He has made a provision to restore you. And that He uses it to teach you how to repent and to come back to Him and to be refined in the fire to be more faithful Christians and more faithful children. And He secured that in your salvation. So many people have bought into the idea that because they failed so many times, they're useless in the kingdom of God. I tell you in heaven, you'll find 12 foundation stones upon which the false foundation stones are written, the 12 names of those men who were not there the night Christ died. God took those failures. God took those blatant sins and did not justify them, yet sovereignly used them even as Satan desired to sift them and did, he used them to purify them for his purposes. And maybe a word of encouragement for those of you who have failed their Lord through denial. To know that you can indeed be restored and that repentance is possible for even the most grievous of sins and that there's hope for even the weakest disciple. This passage has not only served as fuel to the church to remain faithful and not be like Peter and don't deny him. That's a good sermon. Do not deny your Lord. He is so gracious, so amazing, and so able. Look at him. He should never be denied. So this passage is not only served for fuel of the church to remain faithful and not be like Peter by denying Christ under persecution, but it has also served as a refuge for the souls, the men, the women, and the children who have. You can find comfort in Christ this morning, either in repentance, but even so more in restoration. That our Lord still stands to any one of you who will come this morning. Maybe you're struggling with why you're going through what you're going through. Whether it's meaningless, whether it's your fault, whether it's Satan, and it may be Satan, and it may be you. You may be the problem, and that may be exactly why you're going through it. And I pray that it may not be useless. Um, that you'll stop looking at yourself and start looking to Christ. That it may have an eternal impact. And that you will see the trials and tribulations of this life, not only as enemy in some sense, but also as friend. And, if, and, and that's the whole purpose, I think, of Romans chapter 8, verses 30 and on. I mean, if this is our Christ, if this is our great high priest, if this is who we serve, if this is who died for us, how can we ever be separated from the love of God? There's neither height nor death nor principality nor power nor Satan nor demon, anything in the heavens or anything below the earth that could ever separate you from the love of God. I mean, if, if God be for you, who can be against you? If He can utilize the, the failures, the misfortunes, the sins, and even Satan himself to push you on to Christ, how could you ever be lost? And the answer to that is never, ever, ever take comfort in Christ today. And take comfort that you are loved if you are in Him. And if you're not, I beg you at this moment to run to Him who is willing to receive any sinner who will come. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glorious grace of Christ. Father, we thank You for Peter. And I don't thank You necessarily for his failures, but there is a sense in which I glory in them. Father, I glory in the fact that men are not perfect because I'm not perfect. 
But at the same time, I glory in the fact that these imperfect men have a perfect Christ whom they've ran to. And so can I. Father, thank You and praise You for what You have done in Your Son. Father, thank You and praise You for what You continue to do in us through Your Son. Father, what a glorious reality that we have Him. And if so, we are inheritors, Father, of all things. Father, thank You for the trials because in them I find You. And without them, I would never. Father, I don't glory in pain, but I glory in You. And if that be the case, bring what You need. That the fear of man may dissolve in my life. And I may have a boldness of Peter. Oh, I don't ever want to deny You. But I need to know myself. And I need to know You. And You know me, Father, better than I do. So I trust You with my life to do whatever it is that You see necessary to make me more like Your Son and to fashion this body like a faithful church. So Lord, we are Yours. And we trust You. Father, I beg You on behalf of Christ um, that You'll just continue Your work in us. As a church, Father, but also those that may be here, our children that may not know You. God, that You would bring the law of God to bear upon their hearts. And we know that in Christ, Father, is the true law. That You would just press against them, Christ, in all of His glory. And that they'll see themselves, Father, in need of You. And that they'll trust Christ with all their heart, Father, and spend the rest of their lives standing and falling for You. God, we need You to do this because we can't. And we cast ourselves upon the cross of Christ today, begging You to do things, Father, that are outside of us. We are without strength. Whatever that means, Lord, whatever that takes, do it for your glory. That our homes may be changed, that our church may be transformed, that you'd receive the nations, Father, even in the Tri-Cities, even this day. That they would notice, Father, uh, that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings, if nowhere else in our lives. Maybe not in the Senate, maybe not in Congress, maybe not in, um, their, in their churches, Father, but may they know uh, that you are Lord, Father, because you rule and reign over us. And let us not, when that day comes, let us not boast in ourselves. But let us totally boast in Christ because we are no better than Judas. The only distinction is, is that we ran to Christ and He didn't. And I don't know why, Father, why He didn't. May all men come to You. Father, we praise You in Christ's name. Amen.